get some understanding of John, and I'm thinking that as I calculate the time, it's probably more like over a decade ago. And I remember getting up to chapter 4 and into chapter 5, and then after that, the train of thought just kind of got lost. I couldn't quite make sense of it. So I always wanted to go back and try to uh, re-pick that up and try to try to understand what is being here. And so I'm back. Chapter 5, I think, is a transition. In the first four chapters, there's a lot of emphasis on believing. <clears throat> and what you actually see is there's two kinds of belief. There is a belief that the Lord Jesus received and a belief that he did not. So there would be, like in chapter 2, you'll have a comment where at the end of the chapter it says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. So there were people that believed in his name, and they were not saved. Uh, which is interesting because in chapter 1 it tells you that as many as received, uh, not as many as received them, Say. Yeah, that is, that is what it says, but that's not what I was thinking. Oh, yeah. And many received them. To them he gave the right to become the children of God to, his, to those who believe in his name. And it's the same Greek word, same phrase as the end of chapter 2, where it says they believed in his name and he did not receive them. So, But there are a number of people who did believe and they were received by the Lord. And uh, as I looked at that and carefully studied it, I began to see that the difference was if you were impressed by his miracles and you were persuaded by his miracles that, yes, this must be the Messiah and begin to follow him for that reason, it was not, you were not received by the Lord. Uh, but those who heard what he said, and sometimes we can see what the Lord Jesus said to them, like say it to Nathaniel, he said to them, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, and Nathaniel's like, oh, you're the son of God, you know, he Sometimes the things that he said doesn't make sense to outside people looking in. Like, how would... It's not like... I've never heard anybody else use as a gospel message talking to some unbeliever, well, when you were under a fig tree, Jesus saw you, and that person just fall on their knees, and, oh, man, he must be the Messiah. I mean, I've never heard that used before. And we don't understand fully... We can guess, but we don't fully understand the impact that that had on Nathaniel, but it did. Jesus knew what to say to Nathaniel... And, and what impact it would bring upon him to bring him to salvation. Uh, and you'll, chapter 4 kind of really brings it out. It's where John starts to really tie these different threads together. You have the woman at the well, and Jesus talked with her, and she, she came to believe, and she went into the town, and she told everybody, hey, there's a man that told me everything I ever did. I mean, this has got to be the Messiah. She never saw a miracle, but she just heard what he said, and she found out that he knew who she was, and she didn't know who he was. And uh, so the people were impressed by that, and they came out and wanted to see Jesus. And after they had listened to him for a couple of days as he was teaching, they came back to the woman, and they said to her, you know, you told us he was the Messiah, and we believed you, but now we ourselves have heard what he has said, and we have come to believe that he is the Messiah. And so there was, that chapter 4 kind of brings a lot of that together and also includes the story then of the man whose son was ill and he wanted Jesus to come down and Jesus said, you know, unless you guys see signs and miracles, you won't believe. And, and he's like, well, I, I don't know what to say to that. And Jesus said, well, look, your son lives, go home. And the guy went home, he believed Jesus. He heard the word that Jesus said, he believed him and went home. 
And you can, he was in a situation where he didn't have time to go home and check and see that everything didn't work out the way it was supposed to and come back. Like there wasn't, his son was close to death. He didn't have the time to go check and then come back and say, no, you really do have to come. So he believed Jesus and it's evident that when he, that he actually did believe Jesus because when he went back, it didn't seem like he was in a big rush. You know, it seemed like he was going back and his servants met him and said, hey, it did work out. So he believed Jesus' word. And then when he saw the reality that what Jesus said was true, again, it confirmed his belief. It says he believed again and so forth. So all about believing in the first four chapters, what is true belief and what is a a belief that is not accepted by God. But then chapter 5, although although the the, uh, thought of believing still carries through, we come to a bit of a transition. And... I think here at this point we're going to see an exposure of people who do not believe. And why do they not believe? And it's mostly, it's not, he's not going to look at people who are terrible sinners. He's going to look at people who are good, who have faithfully followed God to the best of their ability for all their days. Why do they not believe? Why do they not get saved? So chapter 5 begins with a little story. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind and lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Well, pause there just to comment a little bit about this angel coming down and stirring up the water. Historically speaking, there is not a lot of other people that talk about this, and so there's long been a criticism leveled against John that he is, you know, making stuff up. They're not even sure this is, you know, whatever, what, where this all came from. This really, and for a long time, they didn't even know where the pool of Bethesda was. But they did find the pool of Bethesda, the five porches. Um, but it still leaves the question of the angel coming down, and I don't have the answer for that. Uh, I did hear somebody say one time that it's possible that this was kind of a legend type of thing, that people believed that the angel would come down and stir up the water. And then, you know, kind of like what we have today in the Catholic Church where you've got people who believe that if you, you know, go to this particular statue of Mary or whatever and pray these prayers, or you've got this statue of the saint doing the weeping statue or whatever, you know, different things. And if you kiss the feet or something, sometimes you'll be healed of your ailments or something. You know, you've got these different legends in Catholic religion, other religions, and so forth. And they suggest that perhaps this was that similar type of a legend. I don't know. That that does kind of make sense to me. Because the reality of an angel coming down and stirring water so people get healed just doesn't seem to fit with what God usually does. But whatever. That's why the people were there. They were at that pool and they were waiting for the moving of the water, waiting for some angel to come and some something to happen. <clears throat> and so in verse 5, there was a certain man who had an infirmity 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? 
And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, and he took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. (coughs) It's an interesting exchange that the Lord Jesus has here with this man. As he comes into that area, he sees a man who's been sick for a long time and knows that he's been sick. I don't know if he had some conversation with him or if somebody else told him or if he just kind of knew it. But he goes up to the man and says, do you want to be made well? And you can see here that the man has absolutely no faith whatsoever in Jesus. All his faith is placed in this angel, the stirring of the water and so forth. Because his answer, he doesn't... He doesn't even answer Jesus' question, do I want to be made well? He just says, it's, it's kind of an assumed thing, like, yeah, I want to be made well, but I, it just it can't happen. I can't get to the pool fast enough. I mean, it's not a man. I mean, I'm not laying here because I want to lay here. I'm trying to get to the pool, but I can't. Nobody's here to help me, you know? Like, he absolutely has no idea who Jesus is. He has no idea what Jesus can do. He has no faith in Jesus. And Jesus tells him, despite the complete lack of faith, tells him to arise and take up his bed and walk. Which is kind of an odd thing to say to a lame man, because a lame man can't walk. So to tell him to rise and take up your bed and walk is like, lame people can't walk. But he does. He gets up and uh, grabs his bed and he walks. Obviously he's been healed. I mean, it was implied that he would be healed and so forth, but it's it kind of struck me as interesting that Jesus is telling a lame man, rise up and walk. Because lame men can't do that. And just tuck that in your back of your mind. We may come back to that later. <coughs> the guy gets up and walk, walks, and it's the Sabbath. And so verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, uh, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So the Jews are those people who have done everything in their power and their ability all their lives to follow God. And they do that by keeping the commands, they do that by studying the scriptures, they do everything they can, going to the temple and doing their sacrifices and keeping the feasts and all the rest of that stuff. Like, they're faithful in doing that. And John will use the term Jews throughout his uh, gospel, I've noticed. He uses that term to refer to these especially spiritual, holy uh, Jewish people. It's not always Jews in general, but it's the ones who are faithfully following after God, the true so to speak, true Jews, at least in their mind, they were true Jews. They were not the sluffers, they were the the zealous ones. And so they knew from reading the scriptures that doing work on the Sabbath was a big deal. Um, When it was first initiated to the Israelites that they were told not to, to keep the Sabbath, not to work on the Sabbath, they caught the young guy who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And he was stoned. When they asked God what they should do with him, uh, the, the answer came back that the boy must be stoned. <clears throat> they had a situation when, after they had been carried into Babylon, after they had come back, 
and Nehemiah was busy rebuilding the city and so forth, and he had a situation where people were wanting to come into Jerusalem on the Sabbath and sell their, their goods in the marketplace. And the comment was that they were bearing burdens, trying to carry these, you know, they, they didn't have uh, uh, a nice little farm truck that could throw all their produce on the back and drive into Jerusalem. They had to carry their produce on their back or in their wheelbarrow or whatever. But they had these burdens that they were carrying, goods that they wanted to bring in. And Nehemiah put a stop to it. He locked the city gates. And the people stood, uh, the merchants, would-be merchants or farmers, are standing outside and they're like, hey, uh, Aren't you open the gates so we can go in and sell our goods? And he's like, no, this is the Sabbath. We're not going to bear burdens on the Sabbath. And and so they they learned, eventually merchants quit hanging around, and they learned don't come in on the seventh day, I guess. You know, Monday to Monday through Friday. Sunday through Friday is good, but the Sabbath, no, you don't go in because they're not going to let you in. Uh, so bearing burdens on the Sabbath was a big deal, <clears throat> and these Jews knew that. So were they right? when they said it was not lawful for the man to carry his bed on the Sabbath. <clears throat> I don't know how you can argue that they were not right. Uh, for a man to walk to carry his furniture or his bed around on the Sabbath would be considered work in any other you know, context. And so I don't know how you can argue that they were wrong in saying that it was not lawful for him to carry his bed on the Sabbath. And they took a big offense at this. They, and, and the guy who was healed picked up on that right away. And he, he quickly, I mean, he recognized that he was in trouble. Uh, he had been in the temple for, you know, in this, in this pool for a long time. And he probably knew those stories too of people carrying burdens on the Sabbath and how it was uh, very much frowned upon. And so he realized, oh, shoot, you know, here I'm carrying my bed right outside the temple in Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Like, this is not a good situation to be in. And he's immediately going to feel the condemnation from these guys and realize that, oh, ah. And he says, well, the, actually, he says, the reason I'm carrying this is because somebody else told me. Some guy healed me. And so that's why I'm carrying the bed. And, and uh, they said, well, who would dare tell you to carry your bed on the Sabbath? And you notice what they're focusing on. They're focusing on this carrying the bed thing. And they're kind of missing the bigger picture, that you've got a lame man walking, carrying his bed, because lame men don't do that. They can't. And this guy is. He's carrying, he's walking, carrying his bed. And sure, it's on a Sabbath, but he's walking, carrying his bed. Who does that? Who makes a lame man to walk? Well, God does. I mean, he's the only one that can. But they're not paying attention to that. They're looking at what the man is doing, not what God is doing. And he he tries to pass... I, I think he's trying to, you know, wiggle out from underneath some of this condemnation and saying it was this guy who told me to take up the bed and walk. And they want to know who it was, but he didn't know and then in verse 14, it says that afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And then the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And I interpret that as he threw Jesus under the bus. <clears throat> I mean, 
the Jews were Jesus' enemy, and they clearly did not like this man that healed him, and he went in, and so he went right back to Jesus' enemies, and he said, it was Jesus that, that healed me. Why did he do that? Why would he throw Jesus under the bus like that? I mean, Jesus made him go walk. And I think it was because of what Jesus said to him, that what Jesus said to him fully exposed where his heart was at. Jesus said to him, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now when I read that verse, I assume that what Jesus is talking about is that maybe way back in his past, that man had sinned, and as a result, you know, he had, you know, maybe he had gone to the kitchen and stole some cookies out of that cookie jar from his mom, but then the fridge fell on his legs and broke them, and so he was lame the rest of his life. You know, something like that. He had sinned, and in the process of sinning, he had ended up lame. And so Jesus is telling him, don't go into sin unless you have a worse thing happen to you. Like, that's what I assume, that he's talking about some sin that the guy had done. But if you think about it from the guy's perspective, who had just been caught carrying the bed on a Sabbath, because Jesus told him to carry the bed, and feeling like that's the sin, is carrying the bed on the Sabbath, and then Jesus comes up to him and says... And you shouldn't sin anymore. And he's like, you told me to carry the bed. And that would, and if, I, and if I was in that position then where Jesus told me to carry the bed, I got in all trouble because you told me, now you're telling me not to sin again. Yeah, I'd go rat on him too. I think that's where he was at. But it exposes his heart that he did not feel the guilt of his sin before God. Who cares about carrying the bed on the Sabbath, but all the sin that you've done throughout your past life. Like he didn't feel that guilt so when Jesus mentioned sin, he wasn't thinking about his sin. He may have been thinking about the bed he was carrying on the Sabbath. So I think it exposes his heart that this man was not, not only did he not believe in Jesus, he did not believe in God, that God's word was not in him. You know, he was, this guy was in poor shape. He was more concerned about what the Jews thought about him than what, he, than what, uh, than what God thought about him. That's, so that's kind of the way I read that first bit here. Now in verse 16, uh, the, uh, the following comments then really kind of, the, the, I don't know, the story provides a, a good backdrop to understand what happens here next. So in verse 16, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Again, they were focused on what the man was doing, carrying the bed on the Sabbath. They were not paying attention to what God had done in making a lame man to walk. <clears throat> and Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I, have been, and I have been working. And therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. This used to confuse me a lot. I didn't understand how Jesus' statement, my father's been working and I have been working, because he, he referenced God as his father more than once, <clears throat> and it didn't seem to cause people any heartburn. They didn't seem to correlate that with him being equal to God. Uh, so why the Jews reacted so strongly to this statement, saying that God was his father, didn't make any sense. But I think what Jesus is saying... It has to do with the working side of it. Uh, my father's been working and I have been working. And I think what he's saying is, is I've drawn a correlation to what we often see 
in uh, in business. You've got a man who starts a business. Let's say, you know, my dad. He started a business. He was a framing company and so forth. And so, I used to I used to work for him, and my brothers worked for him, and we would uh, and and hope would work for him, and uh, we'd go out and frame the house and. And as time went on, as we became more familiar with how Dad wanted to do things, we would become uh, elevated from an authority perspective over some of the other employees. And so when it was break time, we always thought it was a very funny joke to see who would say break time, and then everybody would respond and go for the trader, for break trader. And Hope would do it sometimes. She's like, all right, break time, and it was break time. And me and my brother would look at each other and we'd just keep on working. And then all the other guys, they'd look and they'd see we're still working, so they'd all stay working. Hope would be walking off and she'd be like, come on! And then she'd be all frustrated and then Aaron would be like, all right, break time, and everybody would go. And she'd be like, what's up with that? And all the nobody, we did it just to provoke her and, <laughs> and laughed at her a lot and stuff like that. But it illustrated the fact that it wasn't Dad that said break time, even though he was the business owner. It was one of the boys, or Hope. You know, sometimes we went for it, but whatever. You know, it's like one of the kids would say it's break time, and so you go because and it wasn't. None of the other guys would ever say it was break time because they they weren't, you know, the sons or of the of the father. You know, they, and so you, as a son in your dad's business, you begin to move up the ladder, corporate ladder, so to speak, uh, until you reach a point where, which Aaron eventually reached, because I quit long before then. But where what Aaron said was as if Dad had said it. If he said, if Aaron said, we're going to do, we're going to approach this house this way, he didn't have to go ask Dad and say, hey, Dad, um, is it, can I tell the guys it's time for break? No, he just said, break time, let's go. And everybody would go, including Dad. You know, because he was, eventually he reached a point where he was equal with the father with regards to authority and how work was being done. That's what Jesus was saying here, I think. And I think the terms that he was using for working, they understood that what he was saying is that we're talking like a business type of working, father and son. Uh, when, you, when, you, there's a, when you have, when your business name changes from... Uh, like there's a, there's a company in town called uh, Bill Mowbray is his name. He, he started a business and stuff like that. But this company is now called Mowbray and Son because his son is now running the business. You know, so when you get that, that's the idea here. Father and son working together. And, and Jesus doesn't have to go ask God, well, God, I mean, Father, should I heal this guy here? No, he just does it because he knows what should be done or what should not be done and so forth. He's, he's reached that level of equality with the Father, and that's what torqued them so bad. How can you say, especially given the situation, because they recognized that he broke the Sabbath by telling the man to carry the bed. But did he break the Sabbath? Because why was it wrong in the first place to carry your bed on the Sabbath? Is there something morally wrong with carrying your bed on the seventh day of the week? And the answer is no. There is no. If there is something morally wrong with murdering somebody. You don't need a command from God for that to be wrong. I mean, that is wrong regardless. 
But the Sabbath, the only reason why it's wrong to carry is because God said, don't carry stuff on the Sabbath. No burdens on the Sabbath. And so therefore, it becomes wrong to carry on the Sabbath because God said it was wrong. And so if God says to one man, don't work on the Sabbath, and he says to another man, you work on the Sabbath, the first man better not work, the second man better work. If the second man does not work on a Sabbath when God told him to work on a Sabbath, then he is sinning. You know, it's opposite for either one of them. And God did do that. He told the priests to offer sacrifices. They worked very hard on the Sabbath. They offered more sacrifices on the Sabbath than they did any other day of the week. And Jesus is saying, I told that man to carry the bed on the Sabbath. Because I can tell him that. Because I am working with my father. And I have the authority to tell. And they were—they did not like that. They, to them, they couldn't get past that. You can't work on the Sabbath. Well, if God says you can work on the Sabbath. If the Son of God says you can work on the Sabbath. You can work on this. You better work on the Sabbath. So Jesus caused the man to break the the law of the Sabbath, but he did not cause the man to sin because the man was obeying Jesus. If the man had not carried his bed, he would have been sinning. And the Jews are all upset about this. They don't understand. Like, the law of the Sabbath is the law of the Sabbath. No man has the authority to go and break and to say to another man, you can, you should work on the Sabbath because that's not something only, you know, that's, I mean, that's a law. You can't, you can't break that. And so, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. He's describing the way a son becomes equal to the Father in a business. When Aaron is growing in authority on his business, he's not going to say, okay, we're sick of building houses now. We're going to go dig ditches instead of build houses. And dad's like, no, that's not what the business does. The business builds houses. It doesn't dig ditches. And Aaron's like, well, I don't don't want to do that. Well, then you're not going to have father and son. You're going to have son go start his own business. You know, and the father's going to look for somebody else to work with him in building houses. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm not doing, I'm not branching out from my father and starting something entirely new that has, that, uh, that it's going to cause a conflict between me and the father. I'm not starting a new business, so to speak, although in this case it was religion. I'm not starting a new religion or a new method by which to worship God. I'm not coming down here and saying, okay, you go carry your bed on the Sabbath. I don't care what the Father says. I'm telling you, and I'm going to try to undermine the Father's authority. No, he says, I am doing what the Father shows me to do. This is, what I'm telling the man to do, is in exact accordance with what the Father wants done and what he himself does. Things are going to change now that Jesus has come. There's going to be a lot of different, a lot of changes that are going to happen. But it's not that Jesus is going to start his own religion that's completely different from what the Father set up through Moses. It is all different. But it's not without the Father. The Father is bringing an end to what he told Moses to do. 
And there's a transition now and things are going to change a lot. It's not Jesus going out on his own. It's the Father and the Son working together. And they're headed a new direction now. It's not going to be that old law under Moses anymore. It's going to be our old new Savior uh, on the cross. And what he describes in verse 20 is that the reality, the father loves the son, shows him all the things that he himself does. I mean, that's why the boys in dad's business were the ones that rose in authority, because he loved us and he was showing us all the tricks to the trade. The other guys, he just told them, you know, you do this, and would train them as necessary for an accomplisher task. But to us, he showed us all that we were doing so that we could actually comprehend, understand, and do it. And we didn't need him watching us. We didn't need to ask him what needs to be done next because he had already shown us this is what is being done. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's like I'm not branching away from the Father. The Father's making some changes and I'm here with them and we're I'm part of the change. The Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself does and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Make a lame man to walk, man. You should. We should wait to see what is going to happen. He said, for as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so the son gives life to whom he will. And that's a <laughs> you know, one thing to raise, get it, raise a lame man off the ground. It's another thing to raise a dead person out of the ground. Hey, that was clever. <laughs> lame, raise a lame man off the ground, raise a dead man out of the ground. <clears throat> I just thought of that. Anyhow. <clears throat> that has nothing to do with it. <laughs> You're distracting me. <clears throat> He's not... What, what's interesting is he talks about raising the dead. Uh, there were times in Israel's history where you saw God raise the dead, physically speaking. But I don't think Jesus is talking physical here. When he says raise the dead, he's saying like, the Father does this regular basis. He raises the dead and gives life to them. He's talking about raising the dead, not just physical, but on a spiritual realm. And I think it's good to... I mean, we're all familiar with the term of spiritual death and everything, but I think it's good to understand what that actually means. And the uh, the situation that that lame man found himself in kind of illustrates to us what it means to be spiritually dead from a Jewish perspective. So... God had told the Israelites, you know, you carry your burdens on the Sabbath and so forth. You break my Sabbaths and I will I will run you out of the land. And remember that's why they one of the reasons that God gave for them as why they left Babylon or why they left Israel, why the Babylonians came and took them out of the land and hauled them off to Babylon was because they didn't keep the land Sabbaths. And so God said the reason you guys are going to be gone for 70 years because there's 70 land Sabbaths that you guys have skipped. <clears throat> oh, I lost my train of thought of where it was going. <laughs> so you got the 70 lamb Sabbaths, you know, they, their breaking the Sabbath caused them to be cut off from the land and from God, from the temple. There was no coming back and offering sacrifices at the appointed time for the feasts. And there was no, I mean, it was, it was all the priests. There was no priest stopping by to encourage you in the things of God. I mean, you were cut off from God. That is spiritual death. <clears throat> the Israelites had seen a lot of that. 
They knew that if you had come in contact with something unclean or if you became unclean yourself through a flow of blood or whatever other processes you might do, touching a dead body or catching leprosy, there was a number of different ways that you could become unclean. You became unclean. If the uncleanness was severe enough, you were to be put out of the camp of God's people. And once you're out of the camp of God's people, there is no coming back to the tabernacle. There's no coming back to the temple to offer your sacrifices or take part in a priest or anything like that. Like you're... You're living an entirely different, separate, worthless life outside of the camp of the people of God. Well, a dead person, physically dead, we know they're dead because they no longer interact with us. Whatever realm that they currently are in, you know, as far as wherever the dead people go, has nothing to do with us. I mean, to be dead is to be completely cut off from the other person. And God has showed the Israelites through the teaching of uncleanness and so forth, that there was a spiritual level of unclean of, of death <clears throat> where you could be cut off from God even though you were still physically alive but your your uncleanness put you in a place where you could no longer have anything to do with anything that God did you were cut off from him you were spiritually dead even though you were physically alive and that's what this man this uh lame man was faced with was that he was going to be find himself in a situation where he's condemned because of his sin and put out from God and, and cut off from God. And that's what spiritual death is. is because of our sin and uncleanness being cut off from God and having no common life. And Jesus says, look, my father raises the dead. People who are spiritually cut off from him, he restores. He removes all condemnation. He brings them back to him. And it did happen for the Israelites. They were given particular sacrifices that they could do. There was a certain period of time that maybe they had to observe. And then they could bring their sacrifices and they could, and God would restore them. They could come back into fellowship with God. He would raise the dead and gives them life. And he says, even so, the Son gives life to whom he will. <laughs> like that's an incredibly powerful statement. He's saying <clears throat> he can go up to somebody who is completely saturated and unclean in their sin. He can go up to them and he can say, you are restored to God. <laughs> you can't do that. You can't take a sinner and say, come into God's presence. Sinners can't come into God's presence, much like lame people can't walk. You just, it can't be done. But Jesus says, I can do it. I can take a sinner and bring them into the presence of God, and they don't have to worry about their condemnation, and in fact, they can enter into the blessings of God. And then he really rocks their boat, and he says in verse 22, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Things have changed now, he says. Now, it's, it used to be that if if somebody was caught sinning, you know, early on, they went to Moses and they asked Moses, what do we do with this man? And Moses went to God and God said, well, Allah says the man must die. You've got to stone him. And so God would judge. 
through Moses, and it would happen through the priests as well. They would go up to the priests and they say, yeah, we got this person that was sinning, what do we do with them? And the priests would either examine the scriptures or, or look to God, and he would say, well, here's God's judgment, and God would judge the person. He says, now he's saying, changing, I judge. This is total equality with the Father at the, at the fundamental level. I judge. I decide whether a man shall die or whether he shall live. And the reason it is like this, he tells us why, is because God, the Father, wants you to honor me like you would the Father. The same respect and the same fear that you have towards your God is the same thing you should have towards me. That's what God intends. Yes, things are going to be different. It's all changing now. But I'm not going and doing things of my own self, trying to get people to honor me like you do the Father, as if I'm competing against the Father, like Satan did. I'm not competing against God. I am doing what God shows me to do. And this is what God is intending. The end goal is that you honor me like you have honored him over the last thousand years or so. I mean, <laughs> paradigm changing. This is like, there's no way they could have comprehended this if it had blown a lot of fuses. Just trying to make sense of what he is saying. And on top of that then is his perspective on what it takes to get life. <clears throat> How does the dead be raised? God raises the dead. The dead doesn't the lame man doesn't sit there on the ground and start working his legs really hard so he can try to figure out how to get up and walk. And the dead person doesn't work really hard trying to figure out how to get rid of his sins so that he can then be restored to God. God gives life to whoever he wills, and I give life. And in fact, the God Father has committed all judgment to me, and so I give life to whomever I will. It's my choice, my decision of who lives. And who stays condemned in their sin? <clears throat> and then verse 24. Now, once, if you can wrap your mind around what Jesus is saying, that he is judge, he decides who lives and who dies, then verse 24 becomes, and the verses that follow become absolutely critical because we all start out dead in our sin, right? Which ones does he decide to make alive? Which ones does he choose to give life to? And verse 24 and the verses following begin to answer that. And this is critical. If you're going, <clears throat> if you are caught with a crime and you are going to see a judge, you're going to court, you probably want to know what would be the best thing to say so that the judge doesn't throw you into jail for the rest of your life? How do you? Is there any way that you can get off the cook? Is there anything that that judge is going to appreciate that if you can present and say, well, sir, your honor, this is what I'm going to do from here on out. You know, I'm going to help old ladies across the street. And the judge is like, oh, that's tremendous. All right, I'll let you off the hook. You know, like, you want to know what's the basis of the judgment? When is he going to let somebody off the hook? And when is he going to condemn them? And that's what happens next. The judge begins to speak and say, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
this is how you get off the hook. This is how you escape death. This is, this is how you become that one that I choose to save. In the first four chapters, we're talking about what it means to hear his word and believe in him who sent me. What they receive is not just life, but they receive everlasting life. It's like, and, and then he, he, under, he <clears throat> emphasizes that by saying they shall not come into judgment. They have passed from death to life. What he's saying is it's not like, not like if you believe, you know, you do what's right, you know, I'll bring you into the blessings of God, and then if you falter and kind of slip back to where you were before, well, then you're in trouble again, and so now I've got to bring you back again. I mean, that's, that's not like what he's saying at all. Like he's saying, if I bring you into life, it's an everlasting life. Well, this is like, how, how is that even possible? Like, how can he bring us into an everlasting life so that we never have to worry about slipping up and falling back into judgment? Except for, for us, it makes sense because of his death on the cross. I mean, we begin to see that what he accomplished here at the cross is, a, is indeed an internal salvation. And yes, indeed, he can bring somebody into life with God and completely take care of their sin and cleanse them from all uncleanness so that they never have to worry about their sin separating them from God again. Never have to worry about going into judgment again because of their sin. He can do that because of what he did there at the cross, and we, we've come to believe that. <clears throat> How have we come to believe that? Well, remember when I was... Larissa and I were talking and she was trying to understand what it was to be saved or how to get saved or whatever and, and I think we were looking at this passage and, and she said oh ah I'm saved and I, was like, and, and I was like how do you know you're saved and she gave me the weirdest look she's like it says it right here how do you mean how do I know I'm saved but it was a beautiful example of her believing the word he says, most assuredly, I say to you, you believe me, I will save you. The lame man, he said, just get up, take your bed and walk. You can't, lame man can't do that. To the sinner, he said, you have everlasting life. A sinner doesn't have everlasting life. They're not reconciled to God. But if they believe him, whether they're a lame man or whether they're a sinner, if they believe him, it's true. The lame man gets up and walks. The sinner is enwrapped by the grace and the love of God. Jesus didn't have to heal the lame... You know what I mean? Like, Obviously the lame man had to be healed, but he didn't have to heal the lame man first. All of a sudden, it just, it was. The sinner doesn't have to be cured of his sin first to be close to God. All of a sudden, he is close to God. And of course, he has to make the lame man heal first. And of course, he has to forgive the sins first. But it's like, in our, from our perspective, it's like, 
It's true. He says in, again in verse 25, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. <clears throat> it's like the lame man, when he hears my command to walk, if he obeys, he will walk. When the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, how does a dead person hear the voice of the Son of God? They do. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, those who hear will then live. And if we understand that to be dead means to be cut off from the life of God, you're living outside of the people of God, you're living at a distance, and if the Son of God says to you, hey, you and your sin over there, I make you close to God. You who are dead over there, I make you alive. If they hear what he says and they believe it, they will live. He will make them to live. As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Now it begins to make sense, this phrase, what it means, you know, because I'm alive, I have life in me. What is he talking about when he says, I have life in myself like the Father has life in himself? Well, I can live. I have life in me. But I can't make a physically dead person live. I can't make a spiritually dead person live. I can't take somebody in their sin and bring them into the presence of God and they'd be accepted. I can't do that. Even though I have life in myself, I can't put life into a dead person. God can. God can make a spiritually dead person reconciled to him. And the son can. He can take a spiritually dead person who is distant from God and reconcile him to God. He can. And we believe he can. The father has life in himself, so he has granted the son to have life in himself. They are equal. And has given him the authority to execute judgment also because... He is the Son of Man. The reason the Lord Jesus has the authority to make a person reconcile to God, to give them life, is because he has become a man. Do not marvel at this, he said. The hour is coming when those who are in the graves will hear his voice. That's how we know that these first verses 24 through 27, that that dead that he's talking about is spiritual dead. Because 28, he pivots now, and he says, you know I can give spiritual life because, and he starts talking about physical dead. And he, to make sure you're not confused, he says, those who are in the graves will hear his voice. So even the physically dead can hear his voice before they are alive. And they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What he is telling them here is one day you're going to see where the physically dead will be brought to life by my voice. He's proving that he can give spiritual life. And it's important because there are charlatans out there today who say they can restore you to God. All you've got to do is come to them while they hide in a box with the lights off and then you've got to confess all your sins to them and then they say, say a couple Hail Marys and then now you will be restored to God. They are charlatans. You know how we know? 
They can't raise the physical dead. If they can't raise the physical dead, how can they raise the spiritual dead? But Jesus could do both. So we know he was true. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. In other words, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not going to grow up and just make a whole bunch of random people alive, you know, whoever I feel like. Oh, you're cute. I'll make you alive. And you're as ugly as a horse. You just go into condemnation. You know, it's not that a horse is ugly. It depends on which end you're looking at, but whatever. I am working with the Father. The same people that the Father would make alive, I'll make alive. The same people that the Father would condemn, I will condemn. I'm working with him, Father and Son. My judgment is righteous. I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. This passage has been, for me, uh, an excellent passage for sharing the gospel. I've seen a few people come to the Lord because of that statement. That, in particular, it has been impactful on people who have lived their young lives trying to be godly. And then they hit their teens and upper teens and they begin to realize that they're missing something. And to bring this to them and say, look, being saved is not about having the right kind of faith or having the right kind of belief or repenting in the right way. Being saved depends on Jesus. He is the judge. He determines who lives and who dies. It's his choice. It's not your perfection of your belief or the the reality of your repentance. It's his choice. And this is what he's telling you. If you believe his word, he will save you. And something about this passage is people look at that and they're like, oh, it's not about how, I mean, yeah, I know he says. He will. I mean, it just, it, it will click, the lights will come on and people get saved. A very powerful passage here, what the Lord says, and it's directed at people who strive to do, try to follow God all their life, and then find out they've come short. And in the last part of this chapter, which maybe we'll look at next time, he begins to dissect their hearts and show them why it is they don't believe. And it is powerful to me because... uh, I look at my life and I see that I was one who tried really hard and found myself short. And to look through what he describes here and be able to identify with all but we'll close here. Our Father, we do thank you again for the Lord Jesus Christ for sending him into this world. He become the Son of Man and we thank you for the salvation that he so readily gives. Like anybody who has seen their sin and, and is weighed under the guilt of it and sees that that he died for our sin. Anybody that anybody that believes his word, he saves. And <clears throat> what great grace we see him in him. And to know that you uh, that he is doing your will, that he is saving everyone that you want saved. Like that's your desire too, is to see us sinners saved. What a great grace and gracious God you are, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.